Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And he said all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, and he cried out even the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, for your faith has made you well. Well, this, um, last week we, we looked at two things that were obviously true 
that we could count on, death and taxes. We thought, maybe not taxes. And in the end, uh, death isn't even the end. But uh, there's one thing, another thing, perhaps that's obviously true in our world, uh, is that money makes the world go round. Uh, you all know the story, right? That you, you have more money, you, you can have more control and influence, you can get more things done. It's so ingrained in us uh, that so many of us spent misspent years buying and selling uh, all, our, uh, uh, all our property on with Mr. Monopoly. Uh, I, I found out his real name, actually, uh, this week I found out his real name in the, in the game is Rich Uncle Pennybags. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Rich Uncle Pennybags. Well, uh, look, not many of us uh, will be able to buy and sell all the utilities in Mayfair and Park Lane. I never got them. And look, I don't want to uh, badmouth what is for many of us just a fun family game. But the monopoly philosophy uh, can show up in real life, can't it? We can have a picture of ourselves that fundamentally we are self-sufficient. We are self-made people. Uh, that whatever position that we have in life is because we've earned it. We've earned it. And believing this picture uh, doesn't depend on how much money we have in the bank. In our society, it's just the air we breathe, this monopoly philosophy. Uh, but Jesus has something really powerful to say to this way of thinking. For Jesus, you see, friends, a self-made person, a self-made person, a person who believes in themselves and their ability to get on in life, however much good that that can do in this world, that sort of philosophy is absolutely deadly when it comes to the most important thing in your life. You're standing before God, your maker. It's a, it's a bit of an offensive word to us, I think. I hope it is, at least. If I, don't, I think if we're not at least a bit offended by this, we're not really hearing it correctly. Uh, but I, I hope we'll see also today is it is the most liberating and wonderful life-giving message in the world. Well, the part of Luke's Gospel that we're reading today powerfully illustrates this. Luke tells us about two men on the opposite ends of the social spectrum. You would have uh, noticed that as we read through. There's a rich man... And the other one's a beggar. And the key to this whole uh, part of the Gospel of Luke, uh, sandwiched in between these two stories, is the story of the truly rich man, the one who those other stories are really all about, and whose wealth and generosity make all the difference for us. Uh, If you have your hand out, there's a little outline that might uh, help you to keep track of where we're up to, if if, uh, that's helpful for you. But firstly, uh, starting at verse 18 there, the poor rich man. The poor rich man. Uh, The scene opens with a man asking Jesus a question. You can see it there in verse 18. Good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right from the beginning we get a bit of a picture of this guy, don't we? He's a ruler. He's used to getting things done. And he gets straight down down to business with Jesus. Straight down to business. And he's off to a pretty good start, you have to admit. He, he's quite respectful to Jesus. He honours him with a, a, the title, good teacher. Uh, he comes across, uh, to me it seems, as a hard-working religious man. Which makes Jesus' reply kind of puzzling, doesn't it? Uh, verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
It's a bit of a strange reply, isn't it? And not what this guy would have been expecting. If you're a powerful guy, if you're used to throwing your money around or showing some influence, if you're a powerful guy, you expect an answer straight away. You don't expect a question fired back at you. It's sort of as if Jesus is saying, friend, don't try and flatter me uh, with... Don't try and manipulate me. Don't try and flatter me with your honours and titles. I'm not here to achieve your goals for you. I'm not one more task in your workflow. Uh, but perhaps in this answer here, I think there's, a, there's an even deeper significance to Jesus' reply. No one is good except God alone. The ruler should have known this. He should have known this. Uh, And if he did know it, he would have seen just how perverse his question to Jesus was. Just how perverse that question was. See, the only way that we can possibly think that we can do anything to inherit eternal life is if we forget just how brilliantly, white-hot, burning uh, God's goodness is. If we forget about... God's goodness that exposes us in all our sin and impurity and our weakness. The man's question really was the question, how do I be good? How can I be acceptable to God? And he'd forgotten just how impossible the task was when you're compared with God. But Jesus goes on to give a direct reply to his question and it's a brilliant. It goes right to the heart of the issue. You see it there in verse 20, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, uh, the foundational part of the law that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. Uh, They were how you knew you were part of God's people. You knew you were part of God's people. And notice the man's confident reply in verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Come on, Jesus, if that's all there is to it, bring it on. (laughs) I've done it. But what's really important here uh, is actually what Jesus doesn't say more than what he says. It's what he doesn't say. There were ten commandments. And so if you're any good at maths, you'll know. You don't have to be that good at maths to know this. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say them all. There's some missing. He only mentions five of them in verse 20. Don't uh, commit adultery or murder or steal or give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. Those five, the rich young ruler could say, yeah, I've done all of those since my youth. But uh, you can flick back to Exodus 20, if you like, now or some other time. But there you'll see that Jesus leaves out the first four. He leaves out the first four of these commandments. Now, this is really important for us to get a grasp of what's happening here. The first four commandments are all about people's relationship to God. The ones Jesus talks of in in our passage here are about our relationship to each other, but the first four are about our relationship to God. They're about having no other gods but him, not making an idol to worship, uh, worshipping God alone, not taking God's name lightly, keeping the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, resting on it. They're all about knowing who God is and trusting ourselves to him. They're about resting in his good provision, loving his name above everything else. So those are the first four commandments. Uh, But do you notice there's also one right at the end of the Ten Commandments that Jesus doesn't quote here. The Tenth Commandment, not to covet, not to set your heart or yearn for what belongs to someone else. And so 
It's sort of like as if Jesus is saying here, by what he's leaving out, he's giving us a picture of what this man's really deep issue and problem is. What's going on for this ruler. He might be able to say he's kept the five that Jesus quotes. But what this ruler needed was not some more laws to check off his to-do list. What he needed more than anything else was the right relationship with God that was captured in those first four commandments. He might be able to say he's acted respectably, admirably, self-sacrificially towards other people, but could he say that he had loved God with his whole life? Or was there something else, an idol that he had let, he set up on the throne of his heart, something that had captivated him and captured his imagination What about the missing 10th commandment? Well, I think that gives us a hint, doesn't it, as to what this man's idol was. Possessions, wealth, money, the self-sufficiency, the power that they gave him. That's what drove this man. That's what had captured his heart. And so Jesus goes there. He knows this man needs drastic action to free him from his slavery. Verse 22 there, you can see he says, you still lack one thing, one thing that gets... To the heart of your life, young man. Sell everything. Give it away to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Sell everything. It's extreme. It's extreme. What's going on here? Uh, Next week we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. And in that story we read that Zacchaeus uh, gave away half of his wealth. Only half. (laughs) Only half of his wealth. And there's no sense of uh, sort of negative disapproval from Jesus at that point. So uh, this is, the, and this is the only time that Jesus tells anyone to do this particular thing, to give away everything. So I think it's safe to say that this isn't a general rule. Okay, it's not a general rule for God's people. It's specific to this man. Jesus knew his heart, and he knew his idol, and he knew that as long as this ruler loved his money and the power it gave him more than he loved God. He would never relate to God rightly. He would never have true treasure. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that we read the man becomes very sad because he was very wealthy. It's interesting, isn't it? He'd started the conversation uh, confident in his ability to get something done, to do it, uh, to inherit, to do what was needed to inherit eternal life. He ended the conversation in despair. He couldn't. All his wealth and power... They couldn't help him to get this thing done. He, he wouldn't come to God on, his, on God's own terms. And so Jesus looks at him and says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can just picture it, right? A camel... In fact, uh, I was thinking this morning, Dan, I didn't say he'd ask you to do a different kid's uh, uh, talk, but I was thinking of one that I'd seen before where someone sort of made a, a camel up and blended the camel and tried to strain it through this tiny little hole in the eye and it couldn't work. Even if you blend up the camel, you can't get it through the eye. It is a ridiculous image, right? It's a ridiculous image of trying to get this massive creature through the smallest of holes. The smallest of holes. The crowds knew it was ridiculous. And in verse 26 there, they asked the obvious question, look, if it's that hard, who then? 
who then can be saved? If it's impossible for the rich to inherit eternal life, I mean, weren't the rich supposed to be blessed by God? Weren't they the ones with power to make things happen? If they can't get saved, what hope do the rest of us have? It's impossible. That is, Jesus says, it's impossible for us. It is impossible for human beings. We can't save ourselves. And friends, the only right response, if we can see things clearly, the right response is actually this man's response. It is, it's despair. Despairing of ourselves and our ability to get things, to, to, to save ourselves. But that's not the end, is it? There's a turning point here and it's wonderful. The great news that Jesus says that what is impossible with us is possible with God. There is one who can save us, one who can give us new eternal life, one who can bring us into God's kingdom. But this guy, the rich ruler, couldn't see that. And we're going to leave him now. We're going to leave him, just park him there. Uh, Despite all his wealth and his power and his influence, we're going to leave him a poor man. He's a poor man, isn't he, in this story? The poor rich man. Well, skip over. Uh, skip over to verse 35, and the scene changes. Jesus is on his way to a town called Jericho, and there's another man. This guy isn't a rich ruler, he's a blind beggar. He's facing a life of poverty and destitution. He's totally dependent on other people to help him. And so when he hears that Jesus is passing by, he cries out. He cries out in desperation, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't try to butter Jesus up, flatter him. He doesn't try and he doesn't see Jesus as a useful resource, a kind of spiritual advisor on his quest for personal fulfillment. No, he sees the blind man actually sees things too clearly for any of that sort of pretense. He doesn't need advice. This man doesn't need advice. He needs mercy. He needs grace. He needs someone else to save him. And so he cries out to Jesus. He sees who Jesus is, not just a good teacher, but the son of David, God's long-awaited king and Messiah who would bring about God's kingdom. And you can see it in verse 39. The crowds are embarrassed by this guy. They're embarrassed by him, by his cries. The beggars were outcasts and they should be seen and not heard and preferably not even seen, right? They're embarrassed by him, but he wouldn't stop. He doesn't stop. He shouts out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and has the man brought to him. And look at verse 41 there. It's such a beautiful thing that Jesus does, this question that he asks this blind beggar. It's such a contrast, isn't it, to the rich ruler whose concern was, what can I do? No, Jesus says to this beggar, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The beggar can't do anything other than just hold his hands out and simply receive what Jesus gives him. 
So he answers simply, Lord, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he receives his sight. Uh, and uh, apologies, it got cut off the uh, bottom of your page there. But uh, the rest of the passage there, uh, he receives his sight and he follows Jesus praising God. And when all the other people around him see it, they praise God too. Now there's something really interesting here going on here, friends, with the word that Jesus uses. When he says, your faith has healed you, your faith has healed you, the word uh, originally is actually, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. The reason I, I, I sort of point that out is I think it's really significant for holding these two stories together. You see, back in the story of the rich man, the crowds asked in despair, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Remember the answer. No one. No one can be saved. At least not by themselves. <laughs> not by themselves. No one can save themselves. But what's impossible for people is possible for God. And the blind beggar, miraculously, by God's power, is saved. And we're told his faith saved him. Not that his faith was some impressive thing that he offered up to Jesus. That would be a totally, total misunderstanding. Uh, the faith Jesus speaks of here is simply holding out your hands to receive. Holding out your hands like this beggar to receive God's goodness and mercy and salvation. It doesn't contribute anything, it just receives. And so at the end of it all, these two stories, we're left feeling that the blind man had actually seen things much clearer all along than anyone else. He knew the truth of his situation. He knew he had nothing and he knew Jesus had everything. He knew the right approach to Jesus is not to come up asking what I can do. The right approach to Jesus was broken, humble faith, depending on him, holding out our hands and just receiving what he gives us. And it's at this point that the the little sandwich in the middle there, verse 31 to 33, takes on a powerful significance for us. Sandwiched in between these stories of the poor rich man and the wealthy beggar, is the story of the real rich man. Verse 31. Jesus uh, uh, took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. Jesus was the richest of men. Inconceivably rich. Utterly unique. One with God the Father in eternity. He he calls himself the Son of Man. And as soon as his disciples would have heard that, they would have thought of the great image in the Old Testament book of of Daniel. Uh, Chapter 7 of Daniel, this wonderful, incredible, powerful image of one like the Son of Man who had all authority, all power and glory, who was worshipped by all nations, who had an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus says, that is him and it's all about to be fulfilled. But what came next would have been a real shock, wouldn't it? This great son of man, the eternal king, would enter into his kingdom 
How? He would be delivered over to the Gentiles. They would mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day he would rise again. What a shock. It's no wonder that the disciples didn't get it. See, Jesus was the true rich man who gave up his riches for poor beggars in need of grace. And if we saw things rightly, if we saw just how good God is and how terribly poor and weak and in need of saving we are, what else could we do but cry out to him? Have mercy on us. Friends, we receive Jesus' mercy in an infinitely more wonderful way than this blind man ever did. Jesus' mercy went much further than healing in one man's sight. It took him all the way to the cross. Well, uh, almost 500 years ago, the world was changed forever by a man who was on any measure on any measure, one of the most influential people who have ever lived. Martin Luther was a German monk, uh, and he was consumed, he was consumed with trying to do something to inherit eternal life. It left him in absolute despair until he came to see that while he could do nothing, what he needed had already been done and was given to him freely as a gift. This breakthrough uh, sort of set in motion a recovery of the gospel that shook the world. Now, on on Martin Luther's deathbed, uh, this man who changed the world, right? Who changed the world. He asked for a pen pen and a piece of paper to be brought to him. You might know this story. And he wrote what were to be his last words. What would this guy say, this incredible, influential person... I heard some stat, there's more written about Martin Luther than anyone else except for Jesus. I don't know if that's true, it's one of those stats that gets thrown out there, but you get the idea, right? If anyone was to say something impressive, to tell us about what to do, this this was his last words. He wrote uh, on his deathbed, we are all beggars, this is true. What a fascinating thing to write. We are all beggars. This is true. We're all beggars. It's a very different message to work hard, get things done, be nice to rich Uncle Pennybags and buy up all the utilities. Right? (laughs) But, friends, it's true. As far as God is concerned, getting things done will get you nowhere. We are all beggars. And if we saw that properly... Well, Martin Luther's response was right, wasn't it? Despair in in himself. But you see, for Luther and for this blind man in the story, for Jesus, that's not the end of the story. You see, for Luther, realising that he was a beggar was the gateway into the most wonderful and liberating and life-changing truth. Because with Jesus, we are wealthy beggars. We are inconceivably wealthy. He gives us wonderful eternal life, secure hope in the face of death, salvation, God's kingdom, a new family in this life and in the next. 
And the incredible thing is that this wealth, this wealth that Jesus gives us, it doesn't fluctuate with the economy, right? Uh, it, doesn't depend, it doesn't depend on forces out there. It doesn't even depend on us. It doesn't come to us because we've worked hard for it. It is now and it's always a free gift. And that is the most liberating thing. See, the life of a wealthy beggar is a life that's transformed by this gift, by God's grace. Next week we're going to look more closely at one person's life who was transformed by grace. The next little story in your Bible is about Zacchaeus and Paul Harrington will be coming to take us through that. How it transformed his life in the most amazing way. So come back, stay tuned. But notice for now, just to finish up, two quick implications. In verse 43, which aren't on your handout, uh, my apologies again for that, but if you have a Bible, you'll be able to see them. Uh, In verse 43, we read that when uh, he'd received his sight, this blind man immediately followed Jesus. Immediately followed Jesus. It's interesting. there's There's no deliberation for this guy. He doesn't sort of go and check his diary and uh, see if following Jesus would fit into his schedule for that day. (laughs) He had been saved and healed and made rich by Jesus and without a thought, he follows him. It's the same with us, friends. The life of wealthy beggars like uh, like us is the life of discipleship, of following our Lord, learning from him, Obeying him, listening to him. But there's one more reaction that I just wanted to know, uh, us to notice together in the uh, end of this passage. Notice it too. When the blind man follows Jesus, and when we hear things like discipleship and following Jesus, perhaps we miss this second part of it. When he follows Jesus, he doesn't drag his heels. <laughs> he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it praising God. And everyone around him praises God. It's a, what better response for beggars who know their poverty, but who have received such incredible riches? What better response than like him to follow Jesus, praising God all the way? Uh, friends, we're going to uh, put that into action in a moment. Uh, as we sing praise to our great God. Let me pray there as we finish up. Father, uh, let us never forget just how incredibly good you are. Lord, keep us from the self-deception that, I guess, forgets our own brokenness, our own neediness, Uh, Keep us from being deceived like uh, the rich young man was into thinking that we can do anything to inherit eternal life. Help us to see clearly like the beggar. Help us to see our state before you. And even more than that, help us to see your overwhelming goodness and mercy and grace and salvation that you have poured out for us in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Lord, may that truth not only um, help us to despair of ourselves, but lift us up and to hope and rejoice in Jesus 
for everything that he has done for us. I pray that that will transform each of our lives and more and more people will come into the saving grace of our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.